Hello and welcome to the Hop and Brew School podcast. I'm Justin Crosley. And I'm Nick Ziegler. And we are your hosts today. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. We got a lot to do for you today, but a quick reminder that the Hop and Brew School podcast is the podcast to connect the world's finest brewers and home brewers with more knowledge about hops so that we can all drink better beer. And today's topic is no difference. We are brought to you today by Yakima Chief Hops my favorite people in the industry right now because i get to talk about hops with you guys uh, day in and day out oh yeah keeping me up to date on on things that i've been out of the loop on for so long uh so it's fun to get back into the hops with you guys uh today we're going to talk about a topic uh not surprisingly that i'm not very familiar with uh and that is something called hop creep um and we're going to learn all about what that is uh, how it happens and what we could do to remedy the situation. Nick's going to walk us through all of that. But first, what are we drinking today, Nick? You brought me a beer. I, I did. I promised I would do it last time. Um, this is Saucery, a 3.9% Session IPA mm. um, that's uh, made, you know, just, just about completely with uh, cryo hops and uh, extract, single varietal extract. So it's uh, super tasty and kind of trying to show people that you can make a beer that's real nice and very low alcohol with a big hoppy kick using you know some some refined products like extract and cryo so and of course you can go back into the uh, hop and brew school podcast episodes where we talk about the different hop formats like ex, uh, extract and cryo hops uh and and where they're best used so this is a great beer this is kind of my style of beer um I, i'm a pale ale guy uh and and to me the session ipas fall under that category just as well just kind of a hoppier oh, yeah. version right um and yeah this is wonderful i wouldn't have thought um hop extract would be used in a session type of beer my impression was that those were for the the big ipas and the doubles and the triples but uh, clearly this is not the case well, I mean, so uh, there's a couple, couple of different beers that use them. Uh, another one that I've, I think I've referenced before is Founders All Day IPA that mm. uses a single hop extract to get a bit of the flavor kick. One of my faves. Yeah, exact same here. It's, I, I buy flats that like you wouldn't believe. Um, the, uh, so at Magic Rock, we were charged with making an IPA that wouldn't put our owner on his butt. Okay. Because um, he, he, he loves the football team and football games and stuff, and he goes. And, you know, it's, it's Britain, so they drink an awful lot of beer there at, at any sporting event. And so saucery was, uh, it was, you know, get sauced, but not sauced. So right. it's only 3.9%. Um, but he said, he, but he doesn't just want to drink a mild. He wanted to drink something he could drink a lot of, but still enjoy for the hoppiness. So we're like, all right, how are we going to do that? And like, okay, we, we did the recipe. We did a trial batch and realized that we were going to have to put like, I think it was, oh, what's the equivalent in, in pounds? It was like 65 kilos of T90s wow. into the Whirlpool to get the flavor that we wanted because we want the, the, we want the flavor to persist from the Whirlpool, but the aromatics are going to come from the dry hopping. Um, and then we looked at the cost of cryo and we're like, okay, that's going to be, that's just too much. Like okay. We're not going to be able to sell this for the price point that a 3.9% beer demands because in the UK they, 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 they do associate alcohol content with price because of the tax structure. Okay. Um, so we were like, all right, well, what should we do? And it was like, hey, Alec from Founders talked to me about making some real nice extract-based beers, and let's give that a shot. So we called up YCH. This is before me being at Yakima Chief Hops. Um, called him up and said, hey, do you guys got any uh, single hop extracts? And uh, so we got some and super happy with the result. It's, it's, it's very clean flavored. Um, it's very hop forward and, and, and very sort of hop flavor forward it's mm. not just it, like it is aromatic and it does have a nice aroma but the flavor in, in this is really what we we're going for and a lot of that is due to the extracts um, and it was also it wouldn't break the bank and we got really good yields out of the out of the kettle from it so that's why we we chose to do that and uh, you know this is standing on the shoulders of giants like founders and and a lot of the other guys that have done this before um but i love this beer it's um, another great point you know to me that the extracts are, are used for hop flavor as well, because again, uh, clearly a misnomer of mine is, is that the extract would be to get the bittering that you want in the kettle, and that everything else you want to use things like uh, uh, whole hops and, and pellets and cryo, uh, but you know, you mentioning that you wanted the hop flavor to persist through this beer, which it really does. Uh, Magic Rock is the brewing company. Yeah, this uh, is Magic Rock Brewing. Um, extracts can be used for that too, and that was and that was kind of the point. Is that as um, you know, this has been 
this has been known for a long time and it's been done by founders for ages and it's been done um, by a lot of people adding, you know, when I was at BrewDog and heck in 2012 and stuff, we were adding extracts to the Whirlpool mm. because we didn't, we liked the, the flavor impact we got from that better. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, people are starting to realize that extracts aren't just for bittering. And in fact, some big breweries get upset when there's too much flavor that persists from the extract beyond the bitterness, I see, yeah. um, which I understand because it is out of spec for them. Uh, but to me, as usual, as YCH and, and as a craft brewer, you know, more flavor and more retention of the good types was the goal. So, And there is no, you know, kind of jagged edge bitterness in this beer. It is a very round and uh, easy drinking uh Gosh, almost a pale ale, but just like it says, with with the kind of hop charge of an IPA. So, well done. Well, that's that's the team effort. I mean, I haven't been there in about a year, and I was I was real happy with this beer when when I was there, and uh, I'm arguably even more happy with it now that I don't have to taste it every week and now get to taste it whenever I can get it. So yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a privilege. I'll take a 3.9% beer any day. I'm, I'm the same as who this was made for. I'd, I'd like to drink several when I'm out at the game mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, be able to walk out. So <laughs> this is a nice beer. All right. Well, let's jump into our topic today because we've got a, a lot to cover. And as I mentioned, the topic is is hop creep. And, and this is new to me. I've heard the term, but I've never really understood what it was. So, Nick, can you explain to me first, what is hop creep? All right. It's actually germane to the beer we're drinking. So I'm going to get into that a little bit later. Um, but hop creep is something that has been observed for a very long time in, in dry hopped beers. And what it is, is that after uh, the dry hop charge has been added, there has been, you know, this, we, we always thought it was within the margin of error of instruments and what have you, but we always noticed an increase in PG or present gravity, and then a decrease in PG and an increase in alcohol. What is that? That's basically fermentation. So that there's been like sugars have appeared, right? and then they were consumed by the yeast and the alcohol went up. And this happens specifically in the dry hopping phase. Well, it, it happens after the hops have been added and there is still yeast in suspension. Okay. okay? And this is that, that's very important to understand, um, is it does require uh, fermentation to occur. Got it. And so basically, you know, what this is, is that somehow sugars were entering the beer somehow uh, and they were being consumed by an organism that created alcohol. Now, most people, the vast majority of brewers, dry hop when there is still yeast in suspension, and they dry hop relatively warm when the yeast can still be active. Ah. So the supposition was that uh, either the sugars were coming from the hops themselves, like sugars just in the you know in the vascular material of the hops, because nothing else is being added at that point. Nothing else is being added. Account for um, it. Okay. Yeah. Or the hops were doing something to break down the. Uh, the non-fermentable sugars into accessible sugars for the yeast, uh, and the yeast was chomping away. Or, and this was the, another thing that, we, we, that everybody was worried about, was that, oh, it's a, another microorganism and there's a, there's a brief period of infection. Um, that's been ruled out. Okay. So, um, but we, we'll get into that a little bit more. Got it. All right. So just to wrap my head around it, uh, it happens during the hop charge, the, the dry hopping phase, while yeast is still there. Otherwise, you wouldn't see this, this rise in uh, uh, gravity no. and, th- and then ultimately a lower. No, you, w- you wouldn't see the, the rise in alcohol. If, alcohol, the, if there okay. wasn't an yeast there. Got it. Um, so the the idea then is to determine what is happening with these hops that uh, are providing for fermentables for the yeast because they're clearly there. Correct. And as part of the problem, are you also saying that, you know, brewers are seeing a beer that becomes out of spec? You know, they've, they've planned their recipe. They know what fermentables they're putting in, yet ending up with more alcohol than they had intended. That's exactly correct. So, and, and, and concomitantly with that alcohol, they could potentially end up with more carbon dioxide because that's produced at the same time as alcohol is. And so, um, you know, it's... The issue is, is that if you're if you're nudging up against your your spec, and the different countries have different specifications for what your allowable limits are. So some are zero point three percent, some are zero point five, mm-hmm. and depending on what your label claims claims are, they can be zero point zero percent. So they can be like no variance, um, and so that that's a that's a legal issue. Um, and you know you you're you are you are telling people that there is there are this many percentage alcohol units per uh per per can yeah and that's something that you need to 
to be true to. Okay, so by this description, you're, you're telling me that the rise is also significant. Because if we were talking about from 3.1 to 3.2 beer, then maybe we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? No, and that's what's interesting, is that it's not that significant. It's actually quite small. It is, okay. It's very, very small. Um, and the significance of this phenomenon will become apparent later in this discussion. All right. But what happens is that typically brewers will operate within margins of error. So my 3.5% IPA mm-hmm. may is allowable to come in at 32 to 3.75. Okay. Right? So that that's a, that's that range. You get that 0.5% variance that you're allowed to do. And in some places it's even more. But then in some places it's less. So a 0.2% increase in alcohol isn't really going to hurt a human being. Mm. But if you're selling liquid that contains and it pushes you above that threshold. So, for example, uh, an, an IPA at, say, 7.4% in the United Kingdom is taxed in one bracket, mm. but at 76 or 7.7% is going to be taxed at a much higher bracket. Got it. And you will be charged with tax fraud. So can I ask you this, because I'm not a professional brewer. Mm-hmm. Um, when do brewers register? It sounds to me like you would register your beer after it's done fermenting, because if you... If you kind of started to register for for your taxes uh, and the TTB in in the U.S., uh, you know, before the beer is done, you say, "Hey, it's going to be three point five, and it comes in at three point seven. Well, now you've lied. Now, now you're now you're tax fraud. So, do most brewers just register after the beer is made? Well, it depends on your process, the format, and mm. what you're trying to do. So. When you're when you're when you're applying for label consideration, mm-hmm. that takes time, and frequently you have to do the label stuff if you want to have the because the beer can sit in tank until it's ready to be labeled, but it won't be as nice as it was when you want it to be released. Right. So um, you have to apply for labels and you have to get your labeling slot in at the company that prints your labels. Yeah. Or prints your cans if they're a printed can. Um, that can that can be a six month lead time. Right. So you have to get that stuff in order well ahead of time. So in the U.S., I know this is a a bit of a sidebar to our discussion, but I'm just curious. So in the U.S., then, is the label uh, classification, if I've said my beer is 3.5%, different than when I pay my taxes? In other words, I get all those cans made, and they say 3.5%, and it comes in at 3.7%. Okay, maybe no big deal to the TTB as long as I tell the tax guy it's 3.7, even though the can says different. Now, that's what's one of the most beautiful things about brewing in the United States. Okay. You are charged on the amount you produce. Not the alcohol content. Not the alcohol content. Whereas in the United Kingdom and in some other countries, yeah. you are charged on the amount of alcohol you produce. Okay. Which is why very high-strength beers are economically unviable. And everybody says, oh, American beer is so strong. And it's because, A, we drink a little bit less volume, but we are more efficient about it. Thank you, New World. Yeah. Um, But uh, it's also that uh, the taxation structure is different. So the incentive programs for brewers to create big beers and these crazy combinations of things, um, there wasn't any disincentive to do that. I see. Okay. That makes sense. All right, so then let's dive back into to hop creep, and you know we we've talked about what it is. Can you explain to me what you've discovered is happening to make this increase in fermentables, hence the increase in alcohol? Right. Okay. So there's there's a couple things here. First of all, this is not a new phenomenon. This has been um, the case. Well, I mean, it, it is. It's inimical. I mean, not inimical. It, it, it's it's completely due to the process like it, it this just happens mm-hmm. um if you add hops to a beer it's they're going to induce this change unless something else has been done to mitigate it beforehand which we'll get into okay but really um the the the, the, the recent attention on this is mostly and and i can say this with with uh, pride in the entire industry that brewers have been getting better at what they do okay and brewers are becoming more efficient okay so a long time ago, you know, back in the back in the day <laughs> of you know the late '90s and early thousands, tank times for dry hopping were like a week, week and a half, sometimes two weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a hell of a lot of time for the yeast to be able to create 
these materials, consume them, and then deal with the, 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 the stuff that's afterwards. Because this is, this is what's happening. Is that, and, and now, I mean, now people, people, people are getting tank times down below two weeks for, for an IPA, which is phenomenal. That's wonderful. So our efficiency in brewing has made the, the problem more noticeable. It has, it has made, made it more apparent, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's take a little bit of a step backwards and, and look at what happens during fermentation and during, um, so during the consumption of sugars and, and, and transformation into alcohol. Let's so yeasts need a bunch of different things to, to perform their job well. They need oxygen. They need sugar. They need free amino nitrogen, particularly the amino acids valine, leucine, and isoleucine. Okay? And if they don't have those from their environment, mm-hmm. they're going to try to make them. And that's the, that's the amino acid specifically they, they yeah, so so they don't make sugar. So when there's sugar present, they need to consume that and create uh, energy to, 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 to grow, to divide. Uh, they need to have some lipids to make their cell membranes. Um, and they need these, these amino acids, valine, isoleucine, and leucine, to um, really sort of make this, this, this work for themselves and to be able to grow and to divide and to, and to, and to, to create the right membranes and what, whatnot. So if they don't have it from their environment, they're going to synthesize them. And that means that they have to undergo this uh, relatively complex, uh, you know, molecular, this this complex biochemical pathway. Um, And the precursor to these uh, amino acids Mm -hmm. is alpha-acetolactate. And alpha-acetolactate is also a compound that will chemically oxidize into diacetyl. And the reason this is a problem is that the hop creep, the reason people really started noticing this is that the indicator of hop creep for a lot of brewers was not the alcohol increase, was not the gravity increase and then subsequent drop. It was this increase in diacetyl. This unwanted off flavor was happening. Correct. And it was very, very uh, linked to um, dry hopping. And then we, it was only subsequently, relatively recently, that people have identified, particular uh, Tom Schulhammer at OSU and Kaylin Kirkpatrick. She did her uh, master's thesis on this very topic. She's now at the Cornell Extension. She did some really good work on this. Hmm. And the work is still ongoing. But what happens is that when the yeast don't have that free amino nitrogen of specifically those three amino acids in solution, they need to synthesize it. They'll produce alpha-acetolactate in the way sort of biochemistry works in organisms. Um, and many of this is true for, for many, 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 many organisms is that um, they will continue to produce the precurs- precursor mm-hmm. until the signal is, is, is given back downstream saying, oh, we don't need any more. We've got enough. We're going to shut down. But then they have all this stuff inside that they need to get rid of. So they dump it all. And so for yeast, they've been building up alpha-acetolactate, alpha-acetolactate, alpha-acetolactate in preparation to produce valine, leucine, and isoleucine downstream. But then they get the signal, shut it down, but they've effectively got a warehouse of alpha-acetolactate that they don't need. So they're like, oh, well, we need space for other stuff. Dump it. Dump it. Okay. And that gets into the beer. Okay. And then what happens is that alpha-acetolactate can chemically oxidize into diacetyl, and then it will be nasty tasting. Alpha-acetolactate, alpha-acetolactate doesn't have a flavor threshold for people. Like we, don't, we don't notice it. We don't taste it. Um, but when um, it turns into diacetyl, it's pretty freaking horrific. Like, I mean, I, I'm incredibly sensitive to diacetyl, almost comically so, and I really don't like it. But the problem with this oxidation is that it takes almost no oxygen to induce this, this, this change in alpha-acetolactate. So you'll end up with a beer that was just fine, it cleared all of your quality checks. It cleared your diacetyl rest check. And then you go, okay, dry hop it. And so we chucked the hops in there and we, we dry hopped it. And now um, we figure everything's going to be great. Schedule a packaging date, get, the, the, get all the labeling ready. Then you take a sample and you're like, oh, crap. This smells like diacetyl again. What I do we see. do? Yeah. Um, and frequently at this point, the temperature is low enough. Like you've, cra- you've dry hopped it hit flavor spec, and then you crash cool it down to like 5 degrees centigrade or uh, 28 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 1 degrees C. So you're, you're trying to get it clear and all that stuff. You filter out all the yeast, and it's full of diacetyl. And the yeast is no longer there to do its and normal yeast, cleanup. Exactly. It's no longer there to, to, to suck it all up. So what the hell do you do? Yeah. So again, uh, when, when a beer was seeing a longer tank time before being uh, either cleared or, or it, even more importantly, dropping out the yeast... Uh, all of this cleanup was happening, so hop creep didn't really matter. 
Exactly. And okay. that's exactly the point is that basically as brewers have learned to drop the yeast faster, as brewers have learned to reduce their tank time, as brewers have learned to recirculate the hops or burp the hops using CO2 in the, in, in the vessels, um, we've been steadily knocking days off of our post dry hop tank time. I see. And so, so dry hops were added and then the temperature was dropped. So, so it's, it's that tank time between dry hopping and crash cooling that is the key variable. I see. And that area, that timeline has been dropped. And, and I've seen this in, in, in some of the own, my own breweries that I used to work in from, you know, seven days down to six to eight hours. Wow. In order to get all the, all the, all the flavor pickup. So that's a, it's an incredible decrease. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what, you, what you now have to do is, is, you know, adjust your process to account for this. And okay. yeah, you might be losing a little bit of efficiency in time, but you're gaining it in quality and you're gaining it in lost batches, as it were. Okay. So before we go on to ways that we can uh, remedy this problem and, and techniques, I'm just curious, you know, your experience out in the field and you work directly with brewers – even though this has been around for so long, are you just getting a bunch of phone calls about this where people still don't know where it's coming from? Is this something that at YCH you guys are just hearing all the time? Hey. You have no idea. Okay. Uh, I've stopped giving out my business card at sort of certain events. Yeah, right. Where I've stopped putting the business cards on the table because it, it got to the point where it was, it was unmanageable. I see. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Well, no, not a, that's really what I was getting at because, um, you know, one uh, assumption I, I could make is that uh, a lot of the people that might call you are, are newer brewers that are, that are less experienced. But I'm thinking maybe that's not exactly the case. I think that even experienced brewers, they know well enough, well, heck, I've controlled everything I know how. I have not added other fermentables. I'm doing my normal thing, and now I'm getting diacetyl. So even experienced brewers are calling you because they're like, hey, I've thought of everything else except for the hops. What is happening? I'm just curious if that's kind of the phone calls you guys are getting. So I've, I've been trying to prevent those phone calls from coming by putting out materials for people to, to, to read about this phenomenon and understand it. Okay. And it took us, honestly, um, I was working with some, some very, very intelligent people when I was in the Brewdog days. Um, so Franzi and I spent a great deal of effort working on this problem, and we finally sort of cracked it and at the same time a lot of other people were doing exactly the same thing they were okay. they were they were cracking it and like oh okay so this is the, it was this was a uh, you know co-discovery moment where we're all like oh of course that's what's going on Got it. but there was the the problem with beer and with analyzing anything in beer is that there's so much going on all the time there's so many compounds in this mix there are so many biochemical pathways being activated and shut down and and interfered with and you've got so many confounding variables playing around that it's it, it, it's just this bulk computing mechanism, basically. Mm-hmm. But you don't have a computer to, to analyze it. You have to do it yourself. You have to go through and you know control every variable, control every batch. Mm-hmm. And when you're in a in a professional brewery setting, like in a lab, yeah, you could do this in a 96 well fermentation plate, you know, uh, overnight. But you can't do that in an industrial setting. And the thing is, as we've talked about before, is that labs, sort of, you know, lab scale and benchtop fermentations and, and analyses don't always correlate well to industrial ones because mm-hmm. there's a lot more going on. And also, a lab, you know, benchtop fermentation doesn't cost five hundred thousand dollars in lost <laughs> sales. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 difficult. Um, but we we identified that this was a likely cause and and looked at ways of mitigating it um and you know sure enough around that time a lot of papers started coming out saying hey this seems to be a thing let's we're like aha okay cool this 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 works right and so um you know in contact with with, with laboratories around the world we we're looking at this and it's uh, and this is one of those things which which is really nice about the brewing industry and i think i've alluded to this before we've had this discussion before which is that the craft brewing industry is generally very collaborative in this. Like these mm. are things that we all want to solve because you know the rising tide floats all boats, and so if all beer gets better, yeah, then we all have a good time. Sure. <laughs> but if anybody has a bad experience with one single craft beer as their first craft beer, they're going to go, "Oh, that stuff's nasty." Yeah. So it's true. Okay, one last summary slash question for me, so that I'm just sure that I know what's actually happening. And you talk about these amino acids and the and the everything built up uh, by uh, and, and then getting dumped into the beer. Mm-hmm. It is the idea that plants in general, which hops are obviously <laughs> fall under this family. Yes. 
produce their own starches. And we know that starches um, uh, can be fermentable, right? Starches, typically not. Starches need to be broken down to be into converted. sugars. Okay, you're, I'm sorry. Even that science I did know. You're right. Starches, uh, they produce starches, then they get broken down. So d- I guess what I'm getting at is did the, did the conclusion that it's happening with the hops kind of come from that basic knowledge? Well, like, wait a minute. We don't understand why hops would be adding fermentables. But maybe if it's obvious that they would be adding fermentables because they're full of starches like any other plant. And then those get broken down into fermentable sugars? Well, what's interesting is that it's not coming from the, the direct starches are not coming from the hops. And so that, that was one of my, my, my challenges. I'm like, all right, guys, let's disprove this. Let's A, disprove that it's infection-based. And that was, that's been done over and over and over again. Okay. Um, and then meaning, meaning other organisms are in there breaking down non-fermentables. That's not the case. Then it's like, okay, well, what about the endogenous sugars that are in the hops? Are those creating it, providing enough sugar to uh, induce this refermentation that that yields yields diacetyl? Um, Shellheimer's lab did a really good good job of definitely proving that that's not the case. Okay, there's just not enough sugar in the leaf material. But what is there are amino acids. Nope, the enzymes. Well, I mean, they are ah, proteins. enzymes to break down starches into sugars for the plant to survive. The enzymes are in the hot plant. Correct. Ah, and those are what are being dumped into the beer. Yes. And then the yeast, uh, and then those enzymes are breaking down non-fermentables, what would normally be non-fermentables, into fermentables that the yeast consume. Correct. And those non-fermentables are coming primarily from malt. Now I get it. Yeah, it's a, it's, and you can see why it was kind of this like, we had to, Sure. Go through. Many, I'm, I'm waving my hands here like a maniac here because, of course, you all can see this. Um, there's these all these these crisscrossing pathways trying to trying to figure out where wh- where exactly this was going on. Right. And it's 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 become pretty clear that it is the hop enzymes, the endogenous hop en- enzymes that are um, starch or sacrifying or you know break they break down starches. And uh, Tom Schellheimer's got some really cool stuff. I, I encourage you to, to, to look at it. Um, I'm going to talk to him later and see if we can get him on here to explain it in more detail. Okay. Um, but uh, they're breaking down these non-fermentable sugars into maltose. Yeast is consuming them, mm-hmm. but they don't have any of the other stuff they need. So they're trying to produce mit- uh, uh, the, 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 the amino acids they need to continue to ferment properly. Mm. And that is resulting in diacetyl. Now I get it. So now it's even more fascinating to me, and I, because uh, obviously, as especially as kind of a layman brewer, uh, my knowledge is that enzymes come from the mash. They come from the malting process. They come from uh, yeah, the, all of the malt. That's where the enzymatic activity is happening, so that I can convert starches into sugars, so that my yeast can eat it. Right? Like I just keep it very simple. Specifically, sacrificing so, enzymes, but yeah. Okay. And now I get why it was difficult because you had to sort of break down um, one thing was coming from something, hops. Uh, the other is coming from yeast when it would be easy just to look at, well, what's happening with the malt? That's where our enzymes happen. That's where our sugars are. Um, anyhow, I'm sorry. I'm just finding it fascinating now that you guys did have to put those two different pieces together to figure out why. Yeah, it was actually even it was, more it was, pieces. It was more pieces. It was three because you're looking at the, the malt enzymes. You're looking at uh, the unfermentables from malt. You're looking at the entire this very small sugar addition from 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 the hot material itself. Then you're looking at yeast producing diacetyl. Why the heck does yeast produce diacetyl? What's only in this you know, under these situations? And then you're looking at okay, well, how are the hops inter- interacting with any of this stuff? Why is it happening after after dry hopping? Is it just time? Because you know what 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 is going on here? Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was a bloody headache. It was actually really fascinating and fun. Right. If it hadn't been so expensive, it would have been great. Uh, but it was uh, it actually we ended up not having a there, there was there was not a lot of problems for 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 our experience because we 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 were able to mitigate it based on time basically and, and yeast and there's a whole bunch of old techniques you can use to to do this which we're going to get into and we're get into some new techniques as well. Okay. But um, understanding all this stuff, so what fermentation is, what are the steps that lead to successful yeast division and, uh, and, and fermentation of, of, of sugars into alcohol and, and carbon dioxide, um, looking at where you can get those from and all this stuff, looking at the nutrient base that the yeast requires to, to do this. Um, these all play into how to deal with this phenomenon. This is a very multifaceted, complex phenomenon. Um, as you said, it's cool and it was fun. Yeah. And it, it is fun. Um, but it was frustrating, and it still it still it still tends to be frustrating for a lot of brewers. But we have answers now. Okay. Well, and I lied. I do have one more question uh, because we have answers now. You mentioned that this problem uh, has been going on for a long time. We just weren't as aware of it until we became more efficient brewers. But how long 
have we known why? You know, the description you just gave me, that, that sounds relatively recent. How long have we known why it's happening? Uh, are we talking um, a few years? Are we talking just curious? We're talking a few years. Okay, I mean, not this, that long. It, not that long. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely under 10. That, um, and I would, I would posit that I, I would be fairly confident in saying that it's under, under eight years that it's it, that people have really started to figure it out. Okay. Um, but as as is the nature with with science and, and a lot of research, you you don't broadcast your results when you're halfway there yeah, because yeah. you could be wrong. Right. So. Okay. All right. Well, then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about ways that you can deal with hop creep. Oh yes, and uh, there's a lot of different approaches, and uh, we're going to go into at least a fair few of them, um, if not the majority. Um, but um, I'm interested to see what people say in response to this. And so please, please do write us because I, I do like getting the emails and I like to provide answers to them, or we all do, I guess. Um, but it's, uh, there's, there's been a lot of debate uh, with me personally and with, with some of my coworkers and other brewers, and everybody's got their own favorite way of dealing with it. Right. Um, and it's, uh, it's interesting to hear the different perspectives. Okay, well, you can email us at hopandbrewschool at thebrewingnetwork.com. That's hop and brew school at thebrewingnetwork.com. And I have a feeling this won't be the last show we record on this topic. So as Nick said, uh, please send in your questions, your own ideas, uh, even confrontations. We'd love to hear it all. Hop and brew school at thebrewingnetwork.com. We're going to take a real quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Hop and Brew School podcast. We are back talking about hop creep. And now that we've explained thoroughly uh, what it is and what's happening, let's get to the good stuff, Nick. How do we deal with this problem? All right. So there are a bunch of different approaches to this. And so just to recap, you know, hop creep comes from the fact that fermentables are being liberated by hop enzymes after you've dry hopped Mm. and those non-fermentable sugars are turning into fermentable sugars or being converted into fermentable sugars then the yeast is fermenting those and in the process it is creating um, more alcohol a lower finishing gravity and diacetyl or the precursor to diacetyl which then becomes diacetyl okay um so there's a bunch of different things here the alcohol one is, 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 is one that you can, you can generally deal with because they're, the, it, these enzymes don't have unlimited potential. And it doesn't seem to be terribly, um, the, the, the phenomenon doesn't seem to be terribly impacted by the quantity of hops that you use. It's actually the amount of residual sugars that are in the beer available for the enzymes to ferment. Oh, that makes so sense. if you leave like a 1025 beer and you chuck a bunch of hops in it, chances are they're going to, chew through those and you're going to get you might get a much, much bigger spike we've still never seen it be huge you know we've never we've never seen it be like a two percent alcohol increase or anything like that like that's really 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 big we're talking like 0.2 is, is for some reason it tends to kind of cap out around there which s- leads me to suspect that there are only specific non-fermentable sugars that these enzymes act on we oh, haven't I identified see. those yet but yeah. we're working on it um but again, even that point too could be an issue for a brewer in yeah, the UK. Yeah, yeah, it could be an issue. Okay. So, or just just anywhere, and you know, really anywhere. It's like you know, you want to produce the beer that you want to make. Yeah. You, if you're re- if you're really really tight on your spec, um, that point two is going to change the sweetness profile. Sure. So you know, you got you got to be careful about that. Um, so there are some ways you can deal with that. You can uh, dry it out using um, different mash schemes beforehand to make sure that, that those types of sugars basically aren't available for the yeast. Okay, and that, that makes seems, sense. That seems to work for some. Um, and so that would be uh, mashing between, you know, 64 and 65C, so like 149 to 151, 152. So relatively low on the spectrum, but but that seems to, to help that. All right. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, provide fewer hop enzymes. And so this dovetails nicely with the beer that we were drinking earlier, the saucery, is that, you know, this is a beer that's made with um, uh, hop extract and cryo hops. And so the enzymes are, are resident in the leaf material of the hops. They're not resident in the lupulin glands, and they're not resident in, you know, the, the extract that comes off, which is basically the dissolved and concentrated lupulin glands. So quick recap there, then. Obviously, hop extracts are oils and not having the, uh, 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 the leafy matter. No, they're not. They're not oils. They're uh, the, the hop extract is the is the um, alpha acids, some of the beta acids, the resins, and the oils of 
uh, of the hops um, that come out during the uh, the CO2 uh, uh, supercritical CO2 extraction process and are put into a liquid format. Yeah, it's liquid when it's hot. When it's oh. when it's when it's cool, it's it's kind of like a uh, God. What, what's a good example? You know when you get honey and it's it's kind of cold out. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, mean, I live in the UK. Like the like the unprocessed honey. This kind of like, you have to kind of chip out with a spoon. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Okay, um, and then the cryo hops are the the glands. Yeah, it's, it's so it's so, so we 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 basically take the uh, the the hop material and uh, and process it anoxically under liquid nitrogen and you end up and then sieve it in in, in very specific ways and, and do some special special stuff to it so you basically end up with um highly concentrated glandular material mm-hmm. and a concomitant reduction in leaf material so um you know we have things that are up to you know well above 20 percent alpha uh acid hops which is basically a ton of concentrated so it's, they're effectively double concentrated wow all right so it's half the amount of plant material and then neither of those products uh have the enzymes cryo has a little bit of the enzymes extract has none okay Uh, cryo or or none to have any impact um also you can't just add extract in the cold side so that that helps i see uh, because it won't dissolve um but cryo has um it does have a small amount uh, of the enzymes but um it's less than half the activity uh, that we see this of this hop creep activity that you see with um T90s with whole hops with with uh, you know with any any leaf any appreciable leaf material. Okay. Um, All right. So, so those are some good ways to deal with it. Yeah. Avoid uh, it rather. Avoid it. Yeah. yeah. It's, and it's that sort of the thing. Now, so that that's from the hopping side, really, or and, and the mashing side. There's a, there's a bunch of other things. You know, we're, we're looking at other 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 treatments that we're, we'll get into. Um, we're going to try to try to make this a little bit easier for y'all and provide provide brewers better solutions. Um, but there are some some other things you can do, and this is something that you know we'll get into later on when we have our, our hops and yeast show. Mm-hmm. Um, but as 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 I discussed earlier, a big thing is yeast nutrition. You know, if your yeast is healthy and happy. And you're giving all the food it needs. It's not going to need to try to try to need to make its own amino acids. And if it doesn't need to make its own valine, isoleucine, and leucine, then it's not going to produce the alpha acetolactate, which is then not going to be available to turn into diacetyl. I see. Okay. So there's two ways. So to this m- is this is with or without hop creep. This is with or without hop creep. Right. This yeah. Is just, this is just and that and that's this is this is what I go, this goes back and I've mentioned this time and time again before. Is that you know this show is about helping us all drink better, nice, hoppy beer. Sure. And a big deal of that is, yeah. is, is dealing with your fermentation health and your yeast health. Okay. So there's two ways to do this. One, you can either make sure that your yeast is healthy going into it and you're providing it enough of the right nutrients, the amino acids, the right level of oxygen, the right amount of lipids for its cell membranes. So it doesn't have to go into this uh, or at least doesn't have to go as deep into the synthetic pathway to produce all these things. It will go into it a little bit uh, when you dry hop because it will have already used up most of this material. But if it has a good, healthy store of these things already in there, it's not going to need to produce as much. I see. And so the, 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 the uh, I guess, the indicator of the phenomenon, meaning the diacetyl, is going to be much, much lower. Okay. It'll be, it'll be easy, more easily dealt with. The other one is just give your yeast some time. You know, if you look at your fermentation records, if you're a brewer, and um, I know this from most of the brewers I speak to now, you know, which is nice, you know, even two years ago, I was asking, hey, how long is your tank time after dry hopping? And, and they were routinely saying seven days, 15 days, 11 days. And now I'm saying, how long is your, your tank time? And they're saying, oh, you know, 12 to 14 days. And I was like, oh, total? Yeah. And they're like, okay, well, that's a huge reduction. So you're, you're already talking about a, you know, at least a 30% to 50%, if not more, reduction on your tank time. So sacrifice a little bit of your efficiency in yeah. terms of tank time yeah. for to make sure you're not blowing a batch. Which, again, this is kind of why I say with or without hop creep, because the diacetyl problem uh, and other uh, off flavors can, can happen if the yeast isn't given the right amount of time to do it, to clean up after itself is really how, how I always looked at it, right? Like, just let it clean up after itself. So um, hop creep is just another reason to allow the yeast enough time to clean up after itself. And then I just want to clarify for, you know, some of our homebrewers are kind of new to this too. Um, you know, what you mean by, you know, give the yeast time is at the fermentation temperature that they need. So you're neither cold crashing to start to drop the yeast out or obviously racking off of the yeast if you're a home brewer or, or, or removing the yeast from the bottom of your conical if you're a pro brewer. That's what you mean by allowing the yeast more time, right? 
Actually, no. Um, and, and so you actually, you, you kind of hit on, hit on a, a big point of confusion. If you remember back to a couple of shows ago, we were talking about the formation of mercaptans in yeast, mm-hmm. or in beer, sorry. And a lot of that being due to too much yeast in suspension, dead yeast, and what have you, and those compounds coming out. And so this is where it becomes that, that delicate art of balancing these things. All right. So now yeast in the cone, the, prim, the, the, the majority of the yeast in the cone or at the bottom of your tank isn't going to be doing squat. Because it's underneath that top layer. So it's only that top layer of yeast that is doing anything for your beer. And it's only touching, it's only doing that to the beer that it's touching. So if you don't have convection or mixing going on, the yeast in the bottom of your tank is doing nothing but dying and rotting. And that's why I advocated getting stuff out earlier and so on and so forth. And we can talk about that in another episode, and we will if we're lucky here. Um, so then what am I doing to allow my, you know, if all of that is sitting at the bottom of my cone, does that mean the yeast has done its job? Everything's cleaned up? Well, no. That's the thing is that not all of the yeast will drop out. So you're always going to be left with a fairly high cell count in suspension until you crash cool it down below about 5 degrees C or below about, oh, what's the fairy number term? It'll be like, say, 30 seven Fahrenheit. So temperature is the real key here. Temperature is a real key here. So you need to have yeast that is healthy, that doesn't have um, a lack of nutrients, Mm -hmm. um, and is in suspension, and is still basically hasn't gone dormant. And so when you cool it down too much, yeast goes dormant. If there's absolutely nothing for it to use in Mm -hmm. the environment, so there's no free amino nitrogen, there's no sugar, and there's no oxygen, the yeast is going to go, well, this sucks. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. I'm going to go sleep. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the idea. Um, at the same time, if the yeast that's in suspension has been beaten, starved, and abused, it's not going to work as well. It's, this is kind of like parenting. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> be disciplined, <laughs> right. but feed your kids well and, and, and help them do well. And, you know, yeah. they're, they're probably going to work with you on cleaning their rooms and cleaning up after themselves rather than just fight you at every turn or, 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 or sulk and retreat and, and, and be grumpy. And this yeah. is exactly the same thing with yeast. Like, be nice to them, feed them well, give them the right format and the right boundaries within which to work, and they will succeed. I see. So this is probably the worst analogy I've come up with yet. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's pretty good. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let, me, let me, let's try to consolidate all this. So if you give the yeast um, enough oxygen in the beginning... They're going to be able to create enough ergosterol and enough uh, materials that that are that they use to build their their cell membranes and uh, build up enough uh, of their of their energy stores to be relatively healthy. They also have to have enough of the right balance of sugars. So simple sugars in the beginning when they're recovering from being cold and repitched, and they're also going to need to have a good amount of sugar to survive. Um, once that oxygen is consumed, and all the uh, their their internal reserves are consumed, they're going to be, they're they're going to still try to ferment to try to stay alive, but it will be like moving from a fully ba- balanced diet to only eating Twinkies. Hmm. Yes, you will survive, but your health, liver, kidneys, and quality of life are probably going to degrade. Okay. Cue the comment about Twinkies not being a sponsor. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I was just thinking about how I fall under the Twinkie comment in terms of my health. <laughs> <laughs> hey, salad's good sometimes. Yeah. Um, so... If you give them the right balance of nutrients, and particularly free amino nitrogen, and particularly a certain subset of the amino acids in that free amino nitrogen, um, y- they will take that from the environment, store them, and use them. So when you're propagating your yeast, for example, if, if you do do that, give them a good amount of nutrient. Mm. And I, I do apologize to the people that make yeast nutrients, but the diammonium phosphate and the pure yeast nutrients are going to make sure that the yeast synthesize their amino acids rather than uptake them. Okay. Does that make sense? So that means you're still going to have that diacetyl or that alpha-acetyl-lactate production. So there are other nutrients. There are other nutrients you can do. Or so other ways to give them. Yeah. So you take dissolved yeast hulls, for example, that they've been, they've been broken down like the Cervomyces. That is yeast hulls. That's the one I was thinking of. I thought you were saying that Cervomyces is not a, a no, grand... No, Cervomyces is great because okay. it is actually just broken down yeast hulls, so it's chock full of the amino acids that these yeast cells use when they were alive mm-hmm. and full of the lipids. So that gets into solution. The yeast then has access to 
these compounds that they want in already made form. Okay? Right. These yeah. are MREs. These are meals ready to eat rather than ones that you have to go out and buy and harvest and, you know, till the soil and yeah. you know, plant the farm, wait six months, you know, so on and so forth. Um, this is a lot easier for them and they will preferentially take up those. Okay. Um, and they then don't have to synthesize these compounds, which means they're then not going to produce the precursors for the stuff you don't want. And they're still going to be able to ferment just as well as you want, probably mm. a little bit better. And they won't produce crappy off flavors. Good little cannibals. Good little cannibals. Yes. You know, hey, when you're hungry, <laughs> you got to eat. Um, it's fine in nature. We'll, del- we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, as far as I know, um, yeast don't have brains, so they don't get, um, was it Kari Kari, the, uh, the, the brain-eating prion e- disease? Yes. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so a big one is make sure that the yeast are healthy. Um, and, you know, I can, uh, I will actually uh, try to try to help people do what has worked for me in the past, mm-hmm. and that is supplementing with the right nutrients, um, lipids, and, um, uh, you know, branched-chain amino acids like valine, isoleucine, and proline. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, not proline, uh, leucine. Ooh, that was bad. Proline, yeast doesn't use proline. Um, and you need to make sure you get them from the right sources. So these sources, so, so, so yeast... Um, needs the fungal versions of these, basically, or the plant-based versions or something like that. But you can't really give them a beefsteak. Although, I mean, you can, but it doesn't work as well. There is an interesting uh, Irish beer called a Red Cock Ale um, in which they actually used to – well, they didn't used to. It happened by accident when they realized that, <laughs> that that fermentation was super healthy, so they started dropping a chicken into their, into their, into wow. their boil wow. <laughs> on a regular um, – <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, that doesn't go well on labeling for a lot of countries. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So we've gone over reduce the amount of enzymes by, re- by changing hop formats. Um, we've gone over making sure that you can kind of dry out your beer, make sure that the yeast has what it needs so that it doesn't produce um, some of the off flavors. But sometimes you can't do all of those things for one reason or another. Your system just doesn't quite allow it. Mm-hmm. So, how do you deal with it? Um, you can get the enzymes into the process when the yeast is super active. Okay? I have said before, I don't normally advocate dry hopping during fermentation, mm-hmm. but this is one of those times where if you're, if you're so pressed for tank time that you cannot afford another day or two on your brewing schedule to let the yeast form that diacetyl and then up uptake it. But you still need to dry hop. And you still need to dry hop. Yeah. Dry hop in multiple stages. Get one charge into your towards the end of fermentation, maybe in the, even in the middle. And it doesn't have to be a big charge because these are enzymes. Remember, they're gonna they're gonna be there. They're gonna be active. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what's what's interesting is that uh, just as cryo is the concentrated lupulin, mm-hmm. American Noble is the concentrated leaf matter. So you get more bang for your buck from the enzyme activity in the American Noble than you do in the cryo. I see by a large factor. So if you dry hop with those in, uh, you know, in relatively active fermentation, I wouldn't do it early on because. You can get all sorts of wrecked stuff, but after you've done your crop, your first crop with that real healthy yeast and all that stuff, um, you could definitely chuck it in the last 50 to 30% of fermentation, and those enzymes will immediately start to act. The yeast that's active and healthy and has all those reserves because it hasn't been sitting for a while and it's not the last stragglers getting out of suspension in the, in, in the beer. I see. They're gonna consu- they're, it's gonna produce, the, the enzymes in those hops are going to produce these fermentables. The yeast are going to consume them. While they're still active, they're still healthy, and it's not going to extend your tank time at all. And now you've still left some portion of your dry hopping for the time that you would normally do it at the at the very end, but you're you've introduced far less of these enzymes. Well, more importantly, it's it's not about introducing far less of the enzymes; it's introducing the enzymes at a different point in the process. Right, that's what I mean. You're still introducing them, but you've done a charge in the beginning, so they got used up while the yeast was healthy. And now, you've, you, you, just now you can just add your hops again, and there's nothing left for those enzymes to work on. Got it. Okay. Makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's one way to do it. And um, we're doing some, some trials on looking at uh, different profiles and which point that would be the ideal points to, uh, to introduce those. And that'll be coming in a later show as soon as we get that data back. We're still working on it. Um, but that's, a, that's, for me personally, that, that is one of the biggest reasons to dry hop when yeast is active. Got it. Is that you're going to knock off that 
extra 18 to 24 hours of tank time or sorry 36 to 48 hours of tank time sorry so because you're on a time crunch you're on a time crunch and that's and and when i was brewing it was we were um clean or we were basically processing a tank so that was centrifuging it carbonating it putting into bright tank packaging it and then as soon as it was empty blowing it down rinsing it cleaning it and filling it Twice, so, at least two or three times a day. So always on a time crunch. It was, yeah, always on a time <laughs> crunch. And, and, yeah. and on a lot of breweries are like that. Yeah, and, that's, yeah. and that's because, you you know, this is your business. you gotta, you got to make things work. So just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And so you have to find all these little tricks and tricks and ways around things. Great trick. It works. Um, so some people at this point might be thinking that, um, well, hang on. If the yeast is the problem, then why don't we just remove the yeast entirely? And then dry hop. Mm-hmm. You can do that. Smarter people than me are thinking that because it didn't cross my mind. <laughs> so, well, yeah. maybe not because there's a problem with that. Okay. And the problem is, is that it's almost impossible to add dry hops without adding any oxygen. Mm. Okay. And the way that most people do it, and this is one of the reasons I advocate uh, adding oxygen, or uh, no, not adding oxygen, sorry, adding hops before um all of the yeast is out of suspension, meaning before you've hit your, your below zero or, or below freezing temperatures and before you've filtered and all that stuff, mm-hmm. is that um, the yeast still in suspension acts as an oxygen scavenger. So even if you've dry hopped at the time of before you transfer it through a centrifuge or a filter or before you, tra- before you package it, your dissolved oxygen in tank should still be zero. Mm. You, it should be below the ability of your oxygen meter to read. Um, and that's because, uh, the yeast will have consumed it, um, or will have oxidized with other compounds. But if you don't have any use to consume it in there, then the oxygen will only work on the other compounds that it has available to oxidize. I see. And so you're going to basically pre-oxidize your beer. Yeah. It's not a hundred percent and you can actually do it without adding oxygen. You can completely purge your hops of oxygen. You can purge the vessels. It gets expensive in time and in gas and all that stuff. And for me personally as a brewer, it was just a risk I was never really willing to take. Yeah, it makes sense. The other reason is that downstream, you have to be 100% confident that your packaging is 100% sterile. Because if you get anything in your package that can eat sugar or these these freely available sugars that will be liberated Mm. by the by the dry hops downstream they're going to grow and typically that's not going to be a problem for most people because the alcohol levels are high enough the ph is low enough and there's enough isoalpha acids in solution that most so this is not a problem for pathogenicity basically for any 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 disease causing organisms but it could conceivably be a problem for beer spoilage organisms Mm. and that's when you really start to run into the overcarbonation exploding bottles gushers and all that stuff so i really don't recommend that people try to mitigate this by dry hopping once they've removed the yeast all right yeah you can croissen your batches which is a, a a thing about um where you basically take actively fermenting beer a small percentage of that goes into your tank after you're dry hopped and they'll just consume everything, all the, um, all the diacetyl and everything that's, that's produced and they'll just flock out because there's no sugar. Hmm. Um, quick cleanup. Quick cleanup. And that works real well. I've done that on, on session IPAs, on IPAs, on pale ales, on quadruple IPAs. It's, it's you know, I've, I've done this on beers up to 16% alcohol in tank. Like it, it, it works really, really well. And it's yeah, I don't know a, why you wouldn't do that every time. It sounds like a miracle worker. Uh, because you have to be able to balance the flavor profiles. You have to have a similar beer in tank. Mm. Um, it does introduce the risk of, uh, of cross-contamination, okay. of, of flavor changes and all that stuff. Some people actually have a dedicated Croissant tank of a neutral beer that they always have on hand to I do see. it. And, and uh, I re- if, you know, if I were to design my perfect brewery, I would probably do that at some point. Um, Okay. But that, that works. Um, another thing people will do is, is just do it super cold. Like get the yeast to drop out, keep it super cold, um, or even don't get the yeast to drop out so much, but, but just keep it super cold so these enzymes won't function. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, as we've talked about before, if you dry hop super cold, you're not going to get the absorption of all these lovely flavors that you want 
unless you add a whole heck of a lot of dry hops, which from a, uh, as a now working in the hop industry, I'm totally cool with that. Yeah. Um, but you know, leave some <laughs> for the rest of us cause you're going to need to use a lot. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you still run that risk okay. of, of, of downstream stuff, um, you know, causing, causing a potential problem. All right. There is one final way of doing it. And this is something that, um, it's not technically cheating, um, but if you're a total, total purist, uh, I can understand not wanting to use it. And from a matter, as a matter of pride, um, I like the fact that we were able to solve this problem at a couple of breweries that I've worked at without using it. Hmm. But this is the addition of exogenous enzymes. And so there's an enzyme out there called alpha-acetolactate decarboxylase. And what it does, it decarboxylates, means it knocks a little carboxyl group off of or changes the orientation, I think it knocks it off of the alpha-acetolactate, which means that it can no longer turn into diacetyl. So it doesn't matter if it's there. I see. It just doesn't turn into diacetyl, and it cannot turn into diacetyl. Um, it works really, really well. You don't need to use a lot of it. Um, you can chuck, chuck tiny, tiny amounts of it into a you know 10,000 liter, 100,000 liter, whatever, how many thousand barrel tank it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will guarantee that you don't have a diacetyl problem. Wow. My recommendation though is because it can, it can degrade with heat and oxidation over time. And again, you have to be able to confident in your, in your processes and your people and, and your, and your sterile technique that you have to add it after fermentation or, or just before, but you have to add it in a, in a position where it's not going to, um, infect your beer. Um, and most of the producers, uh, produce a very, very good product. Um, but the bottles are liter bottles. So, mm-hmm. and you only need like, you know, 10 ml, 20 ml, 100 ml at a time. So I'm confused. You said add it after fermentation. Mm-hmm. Isn't the diacetyl produced by then? After initial fermentation, before dry hopping. Got it. Okay. Right. So I, I understand. Okay. So there's no, there's alpha acetolactate in solution already. And you can add it before fermentation as well. Um, in fact, that, that's what most people do. And it works really, really well. But again, you have to be very, very confident in your sterile technique. I see. Because if you add it before fermentation, and if you've left that bottle like open in the malt store, mm. that's bad juju. Um, uh, so you have to, because you don't have to add that much. And so, you know, there's this one big liter bottle and you're going to, that's going to service, you know, between 10 and 150 tanks, depending on your volume. I see. Um, so you can make little, little syringes full of it, which would be really actually a really good way of doing it that are sterile and all that stuff in the very beginning, keep them under in the fridge and whatnot. Um, but, and what is this called? Alpha acetolactase decarboxylase. That's right. Commonly referred to as ALDC because that's a lot easier to say. Absolutely. Um, it's all it, you're going to get me to say. Yeah. It works real well. Um, and the nice thing is, is that because you're adding it at the temperatures um, post-boil, hmm. it's going to stay there forever. So if any alpha acetolactate does appear in your beer downstream, mm-hmm. like if someone's got something, they've got a dirty line, it might actually help that. Interesting. So it's, 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 it's a pretty good, pretty, good, pretty good tool. And once we solved it, and you know, the correct way, mm-hmm. the traditional proven way with, you know, reducing enzyme activity and reducing sugars and all that stuff. Um, a lot of brewers that I've worked with ended up adding it anyway, because it was just a safeguard. Sure. And it was a relatively inexpensive one. So those are the ways that I have dealt with it. Okay. Um, and realistically, again, to remember, this is not a new thing. This has been there forever. Just as that you all have gotten better at your technique and you've gotten more efficient at extracting flavors from dry hops, this has reared its head more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And um, if you guys ever want to talk to us about this, this is one of those topics I'm, I really hope to get a lot of questions about because we're going to come back to this as we discover more and more things in our research and working with labs and, and different universities and other brewers. Um, this is exactly the sort of stuff that we want to discuss and, and learn more about. So let me know what you, how you guys are dealing with it and uh, uh, how we can help. And you can do that by emailing us at hopandbrewschool at thebrewingnetwork.com. That's hopandbrewschool at thebrewingnetwork.com. And uh, we'll be sure to get your questions answered on air as well as, uh, as your input, as, as Nick had said. All right, that is our show for today. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Go to yakimachief.com if you want to learn more about the hops and the formats that we've been talking about today. Uh, there's a lot of information over there which you can go check out. And they're good people. 
at yakimachief.com. Uh, that's going to do it for this one. We've got more coming up next. we got a lot of guests lined up over the next several episodes that I think you're going to be excited about. You're going to hear from the great John Palmer. Vinny Chalurzo is in an upcoming episode from Russian River. we got Jay Goodwin from The Rare Barrel. We've got some of the heady scientists that work uh, with Yakima Chief all the time. And uh, we just really got a lot of content coming your way. So stay tuned to the Hop and Brew School podcast. Tell your friends you can find it on iTunes and the Google Play Store or anywhere you like to get your podcasts. Thanks, Nick. That was another good one. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be here. All right. We'll be back with the next episode soon. Take care of yourselves and your beer. Beer.